You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. This week, I'm podcasting a two-part conversation I had on April 23, 2006 with David Mitchell, the author of Ghost Written, Number 9 Dream, and Cloud Atlas. From the Agony Column podcast, I'm Rick Kleffel, and now part two of my conversation with David Mitchell. One thing you talked about is words as music, and there's a certain uh, synesthesia in your work. It, it harkens to a number of forms of art. And one thing I want to get to, of course, is this idea of the Matrushka doll. They seem to be popular in, in fiction. Um, there's a novel by Cory Doctorow where one of the characters is actually a series of Russian nesting dolls. Oh, how delicious. What a and, great idea. And, and the one the one within has to be willing to digest the food that the one outside <laughs> actually eats or they starve to death. And this, this uh, speaks, of course, uh, very specifically to your fiction, uh, and most particularly, of course, uh, Cloud Atlas. Tell us a little bit about, did you have an experience with a Russian nesting doll? Um, my mother's friend had them when I was a kid, and then I do remember playing with one for the first time. How the heart approaches what it yearns, sings Paul Simon. I've always liked that line. You can use the same construction. How the mind itches to understand itself. And one of the ways it tries to understand itself, always has done, is metaphor. Back to metaphor again. Right now, we reach for computers. It's odd how this metaphor kind of stays abreast of existing technology. But uh, the mind and the human personality, it, 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 it does lend itself very well to the model of the Matryoshka doll, the Russian dolls. Uh, we are. It does feel that there are people inside us and people inside them and people inside them. That, 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 that is how it feels, so it does make sense for... Um, for this to be a recurring motif in fiction, which is one of the places where the mind scratches this itch to understand itself. Tell us a little bit about music in your work. You've written uh, about musicians. Um, Delius, the, 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 the biography of the man who writes about Delius pops up in... Cloud Atlas, and gets mentioned again in Black Swan Green. <laughs> yeah, so it does, so it does. Uh, yes, I'd forgotten that. Music is an excuse for me to write about writing without breaking the taboo that it is, um, uh, since this is a podcast, I can use language like this, a form of masturbation for writers to write about writing. Never really understood why this taboo exists. It seems to be okay for musicians say to kind of write something like um, Benjamin Britten's Young Person's Guide to an Orchestra, which is a wonderful piece of music about music. It seems to be okay for poets to write poems about poetry. Um, but for novelists to write about writing, to write to write about novelists, it's it, it sort of, it's it, that, that, that kind of gets frowned upon, I think. Is this why you'll probably when they attempt to do that? Uh, I might, I might, I might. Uh, but it'll have to be in such a way that, uh, that, that that it sort of subverts this existing convention in another way as well. I haven't quite worked that out yet. Maybe one day. But um, but yeah, uh, 
It's certainly a way to write about creativity uh, and language without doing so, writing about music instead. And music is, is I, where would we be without music? Occasionally you meet a person who um, says, oh, I don't really listen to music, I don't really like it, it, it doesn't do much for me. And I think such a person needs help, even if they don't know it. It's it's always moved me. It 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 really does what fiction does, uh, but in in most cases with less effort, uh, it transform it transports you from here to there, wherever there may be, uh, and in doing so, it refreshes you and consoles you, unalienates you, not it not alienates you, it unalienates you. Or it, I don't know if there is such a word. It makes you feel less alienated. Uh, and it reminds you that uh, the world is not like the inside of a car on a hot, stuffy day. That's a fantastic way of putting it. It's only a metaphor, <laughs> only another one. <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about reading because your novels seem really designed for people who read and the experience itself of reading. In terms of experiencing art, most art, and music is, is in there, you just have to lie back and let it happen to you. Look at a painting, you listen to music. You, you, unless you close your ears off, it doesn't require much effort. It, yeah, it yeah. rewards effort. Yeah, yeah. And movies are that way. But reading, you actually have to pick up a book, you have to read the language, and you have to process it in a way of reading. And your books really reward that. I hope so. It's what I aim at. Uh... I also, I just want to write the kind of books that I love reading, uh, and you know, when you're eight or nine or ten, and you kind of read, and you read *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, or uh, *The Lord of the Rings*, or we all have different kind of key, pivotal childhood books that filled me with a lust to do to other people what had just been done to me. It, it, it made me and that ache was, to do so. That was Lord of the Rings? Or um, what Ursula was Le Guin, uh, Wizard of Earthsea, those Earthsea books, that, which are, I think there's five of them now, but in those days there were only three. Wizard of Earthsea, The Tomb of Achuan, and The Farthest Shore. Those were the first books that just... Uh, Almost as strong as sex, uh, just 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 made me uh, inarticulate like I am now. Um, just 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 with just they took me away from wherever I was, whatever my problems were at the time, which of course felt like these sort of earth-shattering dilemmas. But 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 I would have been about ten, and really my problems, I'm sure, weren't as serious as as I thought they were. But nonetheless. Uh, it was probably those th those three books uh, I I truly loved, and uh, so Ursula, if you're listening, I haven't met you, but I think you're wonderful, and I'd love to meet you one day. Uh, and I know I'm not alone, but uh, but 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 she's probably why I'm. I'd have been a writer anyway, but 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 she just um, filled me with lust. <laughs> to do to other people what she'd done to me. This brings up a topic that's not often discussed with people who are Booker Prize nominees and, and people who write what is 
considered literature, and this is genre fiction. You have been writing work that is genre fiction from the from the get go. Yeah, um, it's you find originality not out beyond the orbit of Pluto, but you find it actually inside cliche. You have to just get inside cliche and twist the dials and turn it around just a little bit. It has to be exactly right and just a little bit. Uh, and then really wonderful things can be let loose. Also, that that's uh, I know science fiction and fantasy and, and, and genre fiction has a bad name. In fact, um, my ride this afternoon, my, my media escort, the person who picks me up at the airport and brings me to here and takes me around, said that amongst the media escort world, uh, there's a sort of a hierarchy which reflects the same hierarchy in a way uh, as the book world has. Um, So people who write literary fiction are the writers whom the longest serving media escorts kind of grab and get and they're considered to be those at the top of the tree and then you kind of move down the hierarchy through a mystery thriller down through writers on food and apparently the bottom of the pile are children's writers who who you have to drive if you've just been working at the uh media escort company for a few months what rubbish what rubbish there's i i i, I um <laughs> I don't think there, no, there's 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 no such thing as highbrow and lowbrow fiction. Uh, there's just good stuff and not so good stuff, uh, and there are wonderful writers working in genre, wonderful writers. Um, who wrote *L.A. Confidential*? That writer, is that James Elroy. James Elroy. What a writer! He's great. He's he's dark and powerful, and 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 he's. Dark as Dostoevsky, he, 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 he uses language superbly. He can do dialogue and accent as well as Mark Twain. Uh, just the, the, compul- the sickeningly compulsive nature of his book, uh, just the readability of it. It's not because it's easy, accessible, sl- lightweight stuff that kind of, in heavy inverted quotes here, that even a taxi driver could enjoy. Uh, it's it, 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 it's because it's he uses language so well and so directly, uh, so expertly that uh, that that it speaks to people who haven't done four years of literature in 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 university, um, and that doesn't make him a lower writer in my estimation. It it it, it, it makes him one of the greats. Tell us a little bit about yeah. some of your genre fiction. Um. Why, how did you get, when you started out writing Cloud Atlas, did you know that there'd be parts of it that would be science fiction? Yes, yes, I did. Um, genre is a, it, it, it's a whole section of the orchestra that, 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 that is underdeployed by literary writers, I think. Or rather, they think it has no place in their orchestra. Not everyone, there's lots of good writers who do use it, but uh, but there is a... Uh, what I think is an antiquated feeling that that, that, that it has no that, that, that it's lesser or lower and I simply don't believe that and I think uh, I, I think it has great potential 
I'm um, repeating what I just said, really, aren't I, Rick? But uh, I, in Clone Atlas, there's a, uh, the first genre is a Pacific Sea Voyage in the 1850s. It's a sort of uh, Victorian travelogue genre piece of fiction. Uh, then we moved into the 1930s and we're in Brideshead Revisited Land, in a way. Then we jumped, uh, then we jump in, uh, into the sort of the airport thriller, 1970s, kind of a novel. Patricia Cornwell was a kind of model there. The present day was less generic, I suppose. Forward into science fiction. There's... Uh, 1984 science fiction. Um, Ishii... Um, Kazuo Ishiguro's latest book, Never Let Me Go, is science fiction. Uh, Brave New World is science fiction. It seems to me that when science fiction is brilliantly done, it's sort of hijacked by, by, by the mainstream, uh, and 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 it's sort of no, you spotty, sixteen-year-old boys, this isn't for you. This is this is a real book. This is ours. Hands off, and it gets published by literary imprints and not science fiction imprints it's the way of the world i don't mind this and and and, and, and i'm not sort of turning this, this observation in, into a great big point or anything but i do want to say genre it, it's sort of a matter for publicists no for book marketing departments for sales to consider and to think about and they need to and they do so but but it's not a consideration for me it's not a consideration for um for me as a writer who is, is merely trying to work out the best format to get this book done and if that involves using genre as an orchestral section then then i should it's my job to do so uh i don't think readers think in these terms that much either i don't think they're drawn to or put off books in different genres necessarily I'm one, not one thing that interests me is a theme that I found in, in common between uh, Cloud Atlas and Never Let Me Go which is it, the uh, whether or not clones are, are human mm-hmm. and I'm wondering when you were writing that section was that around the time when uh, they'd created Dolly the Sheep? Yes, yeah. Uh, a bit afterwards, but uh, Dolly the Sheep was ju- was just the beginning, of course, and uh, and and we're still uh, we're still on this road, and 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 uh, it'll be our future. Uh, th- this road isn't going to stop ever. Do you think they can legislate this out of existence? Uh, They're working on it. They, that that's their plan. They can. Well, such legislation globally will be as effective as legislating nuclear weapons out of existence. Uh, Not very successful. For reasons that are better, I think, explored in Never Let Me Go than in Cloud Atlas. Um, This is an example. It's, It's a way you can use genre, not as an end in itself, which is perhaps where genre fiction gets a bad example but 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 as a means to explore in this case ethics and he does it brilliantly uh, well I, a, as do you 
you're, you're very kind. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the what what you've called the secret architecture of your novels. Okay, tell us um, a little bit about that. Um, it's a fascinating concept, I, and I and I'm wondering what the secret, or if you'll be willing to share with us what the secret architecture of Black Swan Green is. Oh, sure. Well, what I mean by secret architecture is um, kind of a master plan of the book that isn't necessarily visible. Uh, I touched on it when I when you asked me to speak about causality right at the beginning. It's a it's a thematic structure uh, of the novel, uh, whereby, as I said, each of the uh, sections is is amongst, uh, as well as being a story, and I hope a readable story in its own right, a well-written story in its own right, is also an, an, an essay in fiction on one aspect of the uh, of kind of the secret theme, which is causality. In Number Nine Dream, every section of the book is also a prose essay on the workings of one of the functions of the mind. It's easy to give by illustration. Uh, the first section is told partly by daydreams. So this is an examination on how the imagination works. The second story is told largely through flashbacks. So this is an examination of memory. The third is told through, it's, it's interspersed at least with, 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 with action in a video game. Uh, the image, this is what the mind does and how it thinks, etc. Uh, on through history. Um, nightmare. And in the eighth section of the book, dream. Told partly through dream narratives. And, and, and is by default in a way but a little bit more than by default as well, uh, an examination of these themes. In Cloud Atlas, uh, the sort of secret arch the secret architecture relates to predacity, power, predation, how groups, individuals, corporations, tribes prey uh, on smaller groups, individuals, uh, less powerful individuals, smaller tribes, tribes along ethnic lines, uh, tribes along uh, lines of economic wealth, social class, etc. Genetically engineered tribes. So, so that's, uh, that's Cloud Atlas, which, which, which brings me to the relatively straightforward secret architecture of um, Black Strong Green, which in a way isn't that secret. Every um, chapter is also a theoretically extractable short story. And in fact, three of them I placed as short stories in various publications just to keep myself true to this discipline before my British editor wisely pointed out that it's not actually in my contract that I'm allowed to serialise before I publish. So <laughs> I, I, um, I was a good boy and stopped doing it. But, uh, but nonetheless, each of these short stories as all short stories do, it has its own distinct theme. And uh, if you wanted to, you could kind of trace a thematic map that Black Swan Green is also a journey across, passing through different themes, 13 of them.
One of the things that uh, Black Swan Green does really well is this: is the onset of sexuality. Yeah, um, the there's no actual direct sexual experience that the no, but has. Uh, I, 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 it's the yeah, you put your finger on it. It's the onset. Uh, it's not the manifestation of, but it's the onset. Uh, I. One of my kind of commandments that I had uh, on a piece of paper on my hut when I was writing Black Swan Green is it isn't a coming-of-age novel. It's a year before the coming-of-age novel. So Jason won't have sex for another four or five years, but but he kind of learns and sees and is, is kind of he, he's, he's in an accidental situation where he's a sort of a compulsory peeping Tom uh, on other people's sexual experience uh, in this book um, uh, so in this book he realizes kind of in, 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 in as in a graphic way that there is such a thing as sex and this insight is true for other of the kind of the key adult insights that that, that, that that you have on the road to adulthood in the process of maturity. One of the things that I thought found really fascinating about this book is the uh, the way you manage the reader's emotions. In this oh, book. thank you. you. You do a great job of keeping us interested. It, you go. Tell us a little bit about how you create this tension where things are good, things are bad, they stay the same. You, you manage a map a realistic life. There's, there's nothing completely wild or extreme that happens, but you keep us really gripped, in, and we love this narrator. We really care about him. Well, thank you. Um, there are two tricks that novelists learn sooner or later hopefully sooner rather than later but uh, uh, one is vulnerability uh, The even when I was a kid Superman was the most boring in the whole pantheon because uh, he was so invulnerable he could do anything, he was Superman the really interesting one was Batman because he was hopeless I mean Batman's crap, really. He, 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 he can't do much. He's okay. He's quite strong, although he, he, he doesn't kind of seem that. He doesn't seem that strong either. He, he has no special powers. He relies on technology that doesn't work very much. He's got a fairly hopeless assistant, but that makes him fascinating. He's chock full of weaknesses, like we are. It's the same principle that's sometimes spoken of in in Black Swan Green. I think maybe I'm making that up. Maybe I don't mention it, but I think it anyway. Uh, unless you are terrified out of your wits, it's impossible to be brave. Um, Bravery uh, is a theme in this novel, yes, and yeah. and, and it's it's beautifully rendered too. Well, thank you. Rewardingly, but, um, I believe the word is a predicate of courage is fear, and Superman never seemed to be very brave to me because he was because he he I mean, unless his enemy had a handy lump of kryptonite handy uh, there was nothing that could really imprison him the other trick that novelists do well to learn sooner rather than later is to uh, 
when you draw your plot line uh, in your notebook or wherever or uh, in your head if you have a more uh, athletic brain than I do you need another line that runs parallel to it and on this line you don't have events like you have in the plot line but you have a um, it's an emotion line on which you track the emotion that you would like to exist in your reader's head at this time. Oh, it's an easy trick. It's easy to do. <laughs> it's really simple. Well, uh, well it's, you, you'd nail it in Black Swan Green. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I do my best. I'm learning. Uh, you might be wrong. Um, you know, um, I may intend to have horror at this moment, and if I'm reading this point, if, if, if I'm reading this chapter out loud uh, at a bookshop like I'm doing this evening, people might start to laugh and you realise, hey, actually, this is quite funny. It can backfire. But in a way, it doesn't really matter as long as there's some kind of an emotional event happening in the reader's mind. It doesn't necessarily matter that it's not the one you intend to be there, as long as there is one there. When there's no emotional event, that's when... That's when it's dull. That's when you put the book down. That's when you think, well, it's not a bad book. I guess you can write, but it's kind of not really doing much for me. And and, and uh, away the book goes. And your book doesn't get bought for people's birthdays or friends' Christmas presents. And people don't kind of want to be associated with, with the book. Books fail because, of, because they fail here. Not really the quality of the writing, but because there's no emotional... Con there's no emotional connection between the reader, the book, and you. So that's what I try to do. It's a simple trick. It takes a lifetime to master, but uh, but but don't lose sight of of, of kind of that key thing. Uh, what do you want the reader to be feeling at this point? You mentioned humor. Your books are very funny, <laughs> and it makes a big difference. Well, thank you. So uh, tell us a little bit about the humor effects. I... Um, well, it's the hardest thing of all to do. Humor is is uh, an elusive beastie. Uh, it metamorphosizes itself uh, in the blink of an eye. What I might find uh, hilarious can, of course, leave... We, we've all had the experiences of jokes that fall f flat on their faces. Uh, they don't necessarily cross cultural boundaries. I've never yet been made to laugh by a German. <laughs> and I've, I, I, uh, I think a German would be quite um, able to say that I've never yet made him laugh. Humour, I sometimes think, is the highest form of wisdom as well. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a profound part of our humanity. Um, and, well, how do I do it? Um, you do it... It's also elusive because the moment you begin to analyse it, like time, it disappears and you're left floundering. Uh, St. Augustine's famous quote about time is that uh, I understand exactly what it is until someone asks me to explain it. And I think the same thing could be said about humour. I understand exactly what it is until you try and articulate it. And then it's one of those things like music. Uh, you, it, it just it won't be captured by a net of words. I can't really say how I try and put humour in my novels. It's an important ingredient because it's an important ingredient in life. For, for, for a book to feel true and feel real, humour has to be there as well as all the other things. But it can't do without humour. And the same way you and I can't do without humour. There's tricks, you know, um, wordplay. 
confounded expectations, making kind of um, well, making fools of people. In a way, the arsenal is no more sophisticated than Lowell and Hardy. Uh, it, it, it's just you do that, you use the same things in more sophisticated forms. But but people falling down on their backsides, either literally or metaphorically, it, it's, it's it's the same thing. It's a uh, punctured arrogance is somehow funny. Farts are somehow funny in the right company. Uh, in the wrong company, they're not funny at all. But that's but humour's an elusive beastie. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you you talked about a hut. I wanted to get ask you a couple questions about the writing process. There's a couple of things I'm curious about. You, you outline, right? You you outline. You 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 map where you're going. Um, I draw rough maps, but you need to leave enough space for unforeseen diversions. And you write back in a roads hut. as well as highways. Yeah. And you write in a hut. Yeah, well, I've got a, I've, I've got a very busy four-year-old and uh, and an increasingly busy seven-month-old. I was speaking to my wife on the phone from the hotel this morning, and he's, I don't, I don't know what you call them in the states, but 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 you get things for kids who have who are just learning how to walk. They're the kind of seats on casters that you oh, put yeah. them in. Oh yeah, I remember those. Yeah, uh, he's now well in 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 the UK we call them. Slow goes, which is probably a trademark, but 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 he is a demon driver of his slow go. So he drives all over the house. Uh, so I, I I can no longer work in the house now. It's a small house as well. I've got a hut out in my yard that uh, I had built. Uh, it's eight by ten inside. The walls are painted orange. The sky's paint. Uh, the ceiling's painted blue. Um, it faces south and west, so it, so it's warmish in the. Uh, Summer, though the Irish in the Irish winter it gets a bit parky in there. Uh, I've got a little heater. I burn aromatherapy oils, which make me sneeze. So that's not such a good idea. Uh, I've got music in there. I've got a big cork board on which I put photos that are related to my novel. Although increasingly, my four-year-old draws pictures that she wants me to put up on the wall. So there's more and more of those in there. It's my little haven where I sit and write yeah I, I, I love my hut <laughs> and I'll always have one tell us a little what music do you listen to it's got to be music well you mean when you're writing when I write yeah it's got to be interesting enough to um, provide stimulation when I zone into it but not insistent enough to prevent me from zoning out of it so from the top of my head Bill Evans Domenico Scarlatti, um, things by the German jazz label ECM, who Keith Jarrett records for, and, and, and that stable of European jazz. There's some Americans there too, but uh, but but mostly Europeans. So Kenny Wheeler, John Sermon, the saxophonist, who uh, are the big names. Um, there's some lovely Scandinavian jazz around at the moment. Um, Ralph Towner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's one, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Um, John Abercrombie, the guitarist. Right, right. Um, early church music's wonderful to write to. Um, Hildegard of Bingen. Oh, um, yes. It's lovely. Monteverdi. He, he's great writing music. Um, kind of. Have you ever listened to Ennio Morricone? Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, he is good. Uh, he makes me think of the films a bit too much, though. Uh, I've, I've got a nice recording of Yo-Yo Ma kind of plays Ennio Morricone. Oh, know, really? Yeah, oh, it's great. Yeah. Oh, that sounds wonderful. That's I didn't wonderful. know such a thing existed. Uh, it's just a few years old. It, it, it'll still be available. So um, those are um, anything that fits the above criteria. Do you have any writing superstitions? Um, not really. Um, there's a nice epic from that says superstition brings bad luck. That's good, <laughs> I no, not really. Um, tea, just tea is uh is great to write with. Um, it, it kind of elevates you slowly and co- and uh, promotes wakefulness gently. Um. Coffee makes me feel like um, the king of the world for about 30 minutes, and after that I start kind of, my, my mouth feels awful, and I kind of feel sickly and poisoned from the inside, and I have to pay for those 30 minutes of feeling wonderful by about three hours of feeling dreadful. Um, so just tea, really, different T- types of tea. Can you tell us a little bit about your new novel that you're working on now? Sure. It's a Dutch-Japanese historical novel uh, set on uh, a trading post in Nagasaki Harbor that for two and a half centuries was the only place in the whole of Japan where Europeans were allowed to live and work. They could never really leave, and very few people, very few people could get on to this man-made island. So uh, it was a strange kind of hothouse prison. But... For various reasons, for me, it's one of the most fascinating plots of land uh, in the 18th and the 19th centuries on on the face of the world, um, on the face of the earth. The people allowed on were the merchants, the interpreters, who were a hereditary caste, really. Um, no one else was allowed to learn Dutch, and at least in theory, the Dutch weren't allowed to learn Japanese. And the women, who were allowed on to service the men. And uh, in some cases, allowed to live on the island as, as the men's wives, in inverted commas, for uh, the period of the men's service there, which, in the, in the Napoleonic era, which is where I'm in, was never more than about five years. It's an interesting time. Um, my novel will, will run from about the 1790s through to about the 18, 1815, 1817, in fact, to be precise. The ships stopped arriving because of the war in Europe. Um, when Napoleon annexed the Netherlands, uh, the English being the unprincipled opportunists that they were and are, um, seized Dutch possessions overseas and um, they tried to take Deshima as well, but um, but for reasons that I'll explain in one of the chapters of the novel, uh, they couldn't and that made Deshima, the only Dutch flag in the whole world to be flying at this point. By a diplomatic sleight of hand, the Netherlands became this tiny little island about the size of of a football pitch, smaller than a football pitch, uh, in Nagasaki Harbour. What's also interesting to me, as the father of two kids who are both uh, British and and Japanese, there were some um, kids born, um, some children born of the same kind of uh, of the same 
parentage uh, as mine, kind of ethnically speaking, and uh, and I, I'm I'm really interested in them, kind of. What does it mean to have one parent from one culture and another from another culture? Which are you? What are you? Is there such a thing as a human ethnic amphibian? If so, what's it like to be one? Uh, I kind of want to understand these questions for personal reasons. And uh, and so this is the, this is the novel, six novellas. I talked about its structure before, and um, the gold standard of historical fiction for me uh, the gold standards are a book called The Leopard by Giuseppe di Lampedusa uh, the Sicilian writer and that is a it, it is a it's a flawless novel it's it's one of the handful of them ever done it's a flawless novel Silence by Shusaku Endo a Japanese writer uh, it's not quite so flawless it's near flawless but uh but it's um, in some ways it's a braver novel than the leopard, just in that uh, he kind of gets his hands dirtier. Um, the leopard is a novel really about a declining state, and sort of the, the, the it, it's it's a sort of the death of the old order, sort of a novel. In some ways, that's easier to do than exploring the kind of themes that Endor explores in his novel Silence. So um. I kind of admire his in some ways even more. But what I aspire to, and these are vain, arrogant ambition, uh, vain, arrogant ambitions of me, but I aspire to try to write something that good, as good as those two books. Uh, that is setting myself up for a flaw, uh, for a, f I've been, it's been a long day, for a fall. And uh, if some, reviewer in about four or five years time or however long it takes me to do this book uh finds this um finds this interview on the internet and uh, and um digs out the fact that i tried to make my book as good as the leopard or science and and and, and if they wish to dismember me uh for not having achieved that goal then they will be able to i think uh maybe even legitimately but it's good to aim at brilliance and fail than aim at mediocrity and succeed, right? <laughs> That's I haven't let you get a word true. in Edgeways there for <laughs> no. about 15 minutes, Rick, sorry. <laughs> and uh, if people tuned into this halfway through, then they'll think that it was just a monologue by this nutter, by this deluded <laughs> nutter. But this is actually supposed to be an interview, so yeah. back to you, Rick. <laughs> <clears throat> I did want to ask you, Cloud Atlas is being translated mm. into a number of languages mm. since big chunks of that involve languages that you've created mm. in English that you've created mm. uh, could you tell us a little bit about the process of translation yeah uh, my Norwegian translator is a wonderful man called Stian Omland and uh, he approached me through another writer he translated Michel Faber uh, who's, a, who's a fine fine writer and suggested that we do for Cloud Atlas what he had done for The Crimson Petal and the White, Michel Faber's novel, and organise a web group for translators of Cloud Atlas. The advantages for the translators are that they get access to me and can ask, and can ask me things, and uh, sometimes um, strike up professional and personal friendships with each other. Uh, the advantage for me is that I only have to 
answer the same question once because Stian compiles all of the answers into a an almanac of answered questions on Cloud Atlas and the more translators come on board we call it the cloud crew uh, the thicker this almanac gets and the more useful it gets so the fewer actually the fewer the newer questions uh, there are uh, and now I get asked almost nothing because all of the answers on the uh, difficult words are already there Different translators solve the uh, the far future language problem in different ways. This is a, for people who haven't read the book. The central section of the book is set on Hawaii, about um, eight nine hundred years from now, maybe uh, after civilization sort of collapsed and the people there no longer have any memory that there is such a thing as an outside world because there's nowhere to get there, and their language is also kind of collapsed and smashed up and kind of semi-pigeon. Um, I've heard that my um, Dutch translator, who was one of the first, uh, the most recent of whom is, is sort of the, f the newest member of the Cloud crew, um, is um, they used the type of Dutch, uh, they used, um, oh, my mind's gone blank, uh, what's the name for the South African... Um, Afrikaans, Afrikaans, yeah. yeah. Uh, they 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 kind of employed that. Um, so maybe other translators sort of employ ethnically kind of distorted language variations within their own language set. It's one possibility. When I was on tour for Cloud Atlas, actually, I did a phone-in radio program in Boston, and a guy phoned in from the Appalachians somewhere, I, I forget which state, and he read to me a piece from uh, from this far future section uh, and it sounded absolutely brilliant in mountain English so um, I don't really know what all the translators are doing to solve this problem but they're, they're inventive people they're special people, it's a high art translation I know they're doing their best Now I have one final question for you as a, as a writer y you've chosen to write fiction and and I'm wondering why why fiction why why are you writing fiction instead of nonfiction? What what is it that fiction allows you to do as a writer that you couldn't do with nonfiction, or that just turns your crank? <laughs> Cranks my handle is what we say in the UK. Um, well, it's Ursula Le Guin's fault probably. Uh, there are different two well. Um, I forget which philosopher came up with this metaphor that uh, a human being is a pyramid of needs uh, the ones on the base of the pyramid are uh, needs for well the need to defeat hunger and thirst and the elements so we need something to drink, something to eat and some way of sheltering ourselves from the um, long cold nights. The level above that, we've probably got something like sex, self-esteem, um, kind of the maybe needs of ownership. And either on the same kind of most basic but one, or maybe the next level up, but nonetheless pretty fundamental 
level. We need we need stories. Now we need to understand as well. There are two distinct needs here. We need the need for th there's the need. Well, what, what would you call this? The need for fiction in its broadest sense, including the uh, hunting campfire yarn sense. This is also a form of fiction, maybe the earliest. Uh, the need to understand. We also kind of th this is also a, I, I think a s separate need. Uh, it's distinct. Uh, we need to understand kind of where these woods end. We need to understand what's on the other side of the mountain. We need to understand where to fish. I think these needs are the same kind of needs that launch space probes. We kind of need to understand the origins of the universe. I th this is a need to understand. This is the need that non-fiction does business in, I think. Uh, you know, kind of the need to understand our own histories, our own psychologies, uh, the need to understand what it's like in uh, another part of the world, which is travel fiction, of course. Uh, now, the need for story, we'll come back to this because it's mine, it's how I make a living. Now, me and my ancestors in hawking to this need also have made a living out of, well, a sort of a living, eh? Um, Yep, we need stories. We need them. If they're not being provided in book form, then we provide them interactively amongst ourselves. Uh, we tell we tell jokes. Back to humour again. The truck driver who's never read a book in his life, when he's uh, in this kind of works canteen or, or on a what do you call them in the states? So like a truck stop. A truck stop. Um, having kind of these enormous piles of food that you have in the States, telling a joke, either that he's heard or telling a funny story that he's lived through, or telling a story about a supervisor from hell, uh, who everyone is roundly abusing and enjoying doing so telling a story about a, an attractive hitchhiker that he picked up and had sex with, or even making that story up. He's doing exactly the same that I do when I write Cloud Atlas, shortlisted for the Booker Prize. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. He's uh, using language to create a place that isn't the same as the room you are in. You fill that place with a narrative, with plot twists, with turns. You people it with the people who were in that story, with the sexy hitchhiker or the arsehole supervisor, uh, the unreasonable cop, the friendly cop, the enemy. It, 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 it has a protagonist, which is usually the first person, kind of yourself, uh, but not necessarily. This, this might be a story that happened to the friend of a friend, into the urban myth there. Now, humans need these things. We have an appetite for them, just like we have an appetite for water, food, comfort, sex. We also have an appetite for stories. And um, I am addicted to using language to, fulf to fulfill that need. I have the need myself. I want to receive these things. But uh, what makes a writer a writer is we have a hunger to do it to other people as well. Uh, not in spoken form. I can't tell funny stories to save my life. I kill jokes stone dead when I try to tell them. I really do. I kill them. If I can remember a joke, I can kill it. For example, a skeleton walks into a bar. The barman says, what do you want? 
And the skeleton says, uh, I'd like a pint and a mop, please. <laughs> now, you're being polite and kind of partly laughing for me. It's But uh, another person, I mean, the person who told this joke to me, I, I was just wetting myself for days just thinking about the skeleton and drinking it down. Uh, I can't do them verbally. I kill jokes. Uh, um, as a kid, because of my stammer, I mean, I kind of... Speech, imped uh, speech impediments aren't, uh, aren't very good for, for for providing this need in a verbal form either. But uh, but I've I had a lust to uh, fulfil this need in written form, to tell stories using language on paper, where I don't have to speak and where I can't stammer. Um, and I've always loved it. Always loved it. And. Uh, and the more I do it, the more I love doing it, which is just as well, because the more I do it, the more unemployable I become in any other area. So uh, I'd better not run out, <laughs> or my children will starve. That seems quite unlikely to me. <laughs> You're very kind, Rick. But, but it's pure fulfillment for me, sheer fulfillment. We've been speaking with David Mitchell. His new novel is Black Swan Green. Thanks for speaking with us, David. Uh, it's been... Shared joy, Rick. Thank you very much. From the Agony Column podcast, I'm Rick Kleffel. You've just heard the second part of my two-part conversation with David Mitchell. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.